everybody. Welcome to the new edition of Right Here, Right Now, when we get to talk to a local author and kind of pick their brains. And uh, this is Pat Young coming to you from Dog Ear Books. And today we are privileged to have Dr. Stanley Lombardo, who has quite a few books in our store. If you have never read him, there's something, I think, for everybody. He's got a, a broad range of adult books and kids' books. So um, we're going to start today. Dr. Stanley Lombardo, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Um, <laughs> good afternoon. Um, hello, everybody. Uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, we're so glad to have you, Stan. Um, and we're just going to you know, kind of chat. Your writing journey, can you give us a little idea of like when you started out and how it's progressed? Oh, sure, sure. First of all, I, I want to... Uh, make it clear that all of the Lombardo men have been storytellers. In fact, my grandfather uh, on my dad's side told me stories that are now part of a book that will be released shortly. It's called Carlo Races the Wudu and Other Sicilian Tales. And uh, the artwork is finished and it should be published within the next month or so, okay? okay. So, I'm, you know, I inherited the storytelling gene. Nice. And, you know, you ask about when I started writing. I can't remember a time when I wasn't writing. Ah, um, yeah. In second grade, I would write stories <laughs> to entertain my friends. Of course, yeah. I probably should have been paying attention to the teacher. But, uh, <laughs> but it's turned out well, yeah, so you're fine. <laughs> right. I did graduate second grade. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, I took creative writing classes in uh, junior high and uh, had a wonderful, wonderful uh, senior English teacher who was my mentor for three years in high school. Her name was Mildred Meese. Uh, she was a close friend of Taylor Caldwell's, the author, mm. and uh, she was also a writer herself. She wrote young adult books, okay, and she encouraged me. She was the uh, the, the sponsor of the literary magazine at Amherst, mm -hmm. that's the high school I went to, Amherst High, mm -hmm. and uh, so I was on the literary magazine for three years, so she was my mentor for three years, and she encouraged my writing, my poetry, and my short fiction, mm -hmm. so she was a great inspiration to that's, me, and still is, yeah, yeah and still is. In fact, uh, part of the dedication at, um, at the beginning of Who Murdered Shakespeare, is dedicated to her mm -hmm. because she introduced me to Christopher Marlowe, uh, the wonderful, enigmatic, mm -hmm. uh, secret agent, playwright, you yeah. name it. He was right. all over everything. He was all over the place. Yes, yeah. he was. All right, so Mrs. Meese, yeah, she was a great inspiration to me. That's great. And so then you just, uh, through, well, through college... Right. I continued to write. Uh -huh. And... and uh, in graduate school, wrote short stories. Uh, was never able to to place one. It was a very competitive market. Uh, but I wrote my first novel after I had received my doctorate, and I was here in Russellville. And I wrote A Shortage of Giants, which you have uh, before you. Yeah. That was my first novel. And it's gone through several revisions, obviously, sure. since yeah. then. Yeah. And uh, I wrote other novels before I came back to it. But uh, that was back when I composed on a, an electric typewriter, mm -hmm. which was the gold standard at sure. that time. <laughs> I mean, I, I put that on my charge card. I used it to, to write my dissertation uh, for Indiana University and then 
I uh, used it to write my novels. I wrote my first two and a half novels on that electric typewriter wow. <laughs> and then graduated to a um, Victor 9000 computer. And of course, <laughs> nobody knows what a Victor 9000 is nowadays because that was one of the, the computers that just disappeared because Texas Instruments, well, even they're not so big anymore, but, yeah. uh, but um, the... Apples and the uh, the PCs took mm-hmm. over and right. they totally dominated. But I wrote, uh, as I said, my first two and a half novels, mm-hmm. A Shortage of Giants, The Maccabee Mission, mm-hmm. which I'm currently revising. And it's a little bit dated. It's about Nazi war criminals hiding out in a commune, a religious commune in Arkansas. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, the idea being that they would hide behind the... the um, sanctity of church and you know right uh, and that they would the, the the plot is that they're planning to rejuvenate the whole nazi high command uh by this secret process that's been developed by, by one of their sur- surviving <laughs> this scientists. is one of your in the works kind of things right, right? Well, yeah, you know, it's, or... it's been written but but what's holding me up is that uh, at the time i wrote it originally there were still some living nazi war criminals I think they're all dead now. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of even yeah, though they yeah. rejuvenated some of them. Yeah. I think I think I read in the newspaper that a 79-year-old concentration camp secretary um, mm-hmm. was was on trial. You know, oh, and wow. so anyway, but that, that's called the Maccabee Mission, and uh, and it, I may update that, and eventually I, I have other things in my queue that I'll probably do first. Right. Uh, right. For example. Uh, you mentioned my uh, Paxton series. Yes. Uh, the Crosstime Adventures of Carter Paxton, mm-hmm. which currently has three novels in that series and then the spinoff, Who Murdered Shakespeare? Right. Okay. And uh, the one that I have sort of on the back burner is called Paxton in the Land Past Coulter's Hell. Um, it's It follows Paxton versus the Armada, and okay. uh, he, he takes a little trip to the New World and winds up in a place hard to describe, but it's not any place that anybody knows. And what he finds is that he finds himself in the middle of a 200-year-long feud between uh, some Vikings and the, the Native Americans that live in that. that oh, wow. And they're kind of in this time war, and they've been yeah. feuding for these hundreds of years. And, of course, his... Arriving there changes the whole dynamic. Absolutely, of it, yeah, know? yeah. So he anyway, tends to do that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and of course, um, you know, he's not going to side with one side or the other. He's going to try to bring peace to, to both sides. Mm-hmm. But of course, there'll be a, a bumpy road. To oh, peace, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. That happens. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway, and and you know, that will be that will be uh, fun to to write. Uh, I've got the outline. Uh, and, and it's just ready to go. But, I, you know, I, I tend to have multiple works on, on various burners. Uh, I have another children's book. This one's going to be a chapter book, uh, oh. a little bit more than, than the uh, Lucas and Nelly series or the uh, the Christmas Dragon right. and the Raptor Who Ate Roses. Right. It's going to be a chapter book. That one's called nice. The Armory Dragon, Ooh. and it's about um, a, a, a National Guard armory that looks exactly like the castle uh, at Nottingham, 
in the Adventures of Robin Hood. Oh, okay. wow. And there's, yeah. there's really, there are several real, honest to gosh, National Guard armories that were made in the 1890s mm-hmm. that were built to look like castles. Okay? Wow. And at the top of this castle that looks exactly like that in Nottingham Castle, there lives a dragon. Okay? And uh, this, this boy, whose name is Ewart, uh, this boy starts to talk to the dragon. And he, you know, he's able to see him. And they converse and of course they have adventures together mm-hmm. and uh, there's also a um, magician a wizard um, whose name is Ambrosius he's probably a cousin to that other magician who's so famous <laughs> Merlin yeah. he's a cousin or a nephew I think he might be a, a, yeah. a junior nephew so anyway so that that one's in progress that as well. one sounds exciting now is that going to be geared more towards younger kids chapter chapter books or more a middle level I think I think younger to middle okay yeah I'm thinking 10 years old and, and 10 12 they love that. Um, that age loves dragons yes so yes. Get it while it's hot. Yeah, yeah that's, I, I think to. that yeah. sounds amazing. So that'll to. be fun. And, and I will have, I'm planning, it for, it's going to be a chapter book, and I think I will have my artist, Miranda Ponder, mm-hmm. who has been so wonderful with the children's books, mm-hmm. I will have her write, uh, draw an illustration, one per chapter, a full sure. page illustration. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and of course, dragons Absolutely. are so great to, to draw. Absolutely, because yeah. you um, can do anything. You can make them look any way you yeah, want. Exactly, I love it. Yes. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Um, when you, you know, because you do have kind of a series, do you uh, want your books to stand alone or do you prefer that, that they're like, um, you know, like you have to read the first two or three to really get the next one? Is okay. that is that kind of the goal or can it's, you reach read number three before you read number one? <laughs> okay. Well, it's a good question. It's a fair question. But it, I, the answer is it depends on the person. Mm. Some people have to start at the beginning. Right. And, and, you know, go through. And that's probably the way I would recommend it. Right. Uh, the, in the first book, Paxton at Bosworth Field, Carter Paxton, who is a buffalo hunter, cowboy, and Indian fighter, mm-hmm. uh, he rides through an Apache medicine cave in Arizona in 1885 and comes out in England in 1485, okay? Yeah, right. And some um, Edgar Rice Burroughs fans out there are going to say, John Carter. And yes, <laughs> Burroughs was one of my major writing influences. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, there are many homages to Burroughs in, yeah. in my stories. Yeah, it's, when I read that one, uh, that came to me. You know, I thought, hmm, okay. But then... It's not. Right. It's, it's not the same. Not. You he know, it's right. like, oh, okay, we get that's to get us going, but now it's now it's different. Okay, and well, I loved 1485, it. Fourteen eighty five during the reign of, of King Richard the Third. Mm-hmm. And of course Richard the Third has this terrible reputation thanks right. to Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare, brilliant playwright, horrible tutor propagandist. Okay. <laughs> he had the job of making Henry Tudor look like a saint which he was the farthest thing from, Mm -hmm. and Richard III looking like a monster, which he was not, okay? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there have been many uh, histories and and even novels trying to rehabilitate Richard. Uh, Mine's one of them. Mm -hmm. He comes across as a real person. Right. Uh, Yeah, that's good. I like that. uh, And so, you know, Paxton is is there. Essentially, he is an educated man. He is a Connecticut Yankee. Yeah. He's graduated from Yale, Mm -hmm. and he knows the true histories. And so 
once he meets Richard, in fact, he saves his life mm-hmm. uh, right right off the, the bat uh, as soon as he arrives in 1485. And once he gets to know Richard and meets the love of his life, who is uh, Lady Joanna, Richard's niece, uh, he's determined he's going to save Richard's throne. Mm-hmm. He is mm-hmm. not going to let uh, Henry Tudor usurp the throne. Right. And uh, so the rest of it develops from there. And it's very much, it's a kinetic Yankee at King Arthur's court, but at the same time a play against that. For example, Paxton, of course, carries with him. He's got Colt revolvers and a Buffalo, Sharps Buffalo rifle Mm -hmm. and a Winchester repeater. And Richard says, well, can you make these for me? And he says, no. Um, The the man in the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court Mm -hmm. was the superintendent of the arms, Colt Arms Factory. I'm not that guy. Okay. Right. Maybe we can maybe we can make you a muzzle loader. Okay, and try that. See if that works. Okay. And well, you have to read the book to see mm-hmm. what what <laughs> solution he comes up with. There you go. He does a little better than a muzzle loader, but uh, but no machine guns. You know? Yeah. No right. Gatling guns. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's the first book, and it establishes uh, the situation Paxton in the 15th century. In the next book, uh, he decides he's going to bring horses to America in the 15th century, which is about oh. 60 to 100 years before they return. Oh. Horses were extinct in, in North America. Did uh, not know that. Oh, yes. Yes, they were <laughs> extinct. Uh, the, the, actually, they foundered. That's a, that's a horse disease um, that actually comes from having too much rich grain uh, right, and, and right. grass and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Paxton's going to bring them back, and he has, he has a, a, a mission. He wants to save the Timaqua tribe of uh, north-central Florida. Mm. Okay. In our timeline, they're extinct. Okay. They were wiped out by the Spaniards, both with European weapons and with diseases. Okay. Mm-hmm. But Paxton wants to save the Timaqua for various reasons. Uh, for one thing, they're, they're one of the few tribes that actually shot a full-size longbow, six-foot longbow, oh, wow. like, like British archers. Yeah, you know, at yeah. The Battle of Agincourt and other famous battles. And, uh, and of course, he establishes relations with the Timaqua, brings horses to them, you know, and that alone revolutionizes sure, their warfare, yeah. you see. And um, there's a, a, a character in... Paxton in the New World that I introduced. His name is Sir Ralph Oldcastle. And he's a little bit based on Rooster Cogburn and a little bit based on Falstaff from Shakespeare. Kind of a combination of the Uh two. And he's the captain of one of the vessels that they they take to the New World. And uh, he's he's turned out to be a very popular character. And he's in in, uh, Paxton in the New World through a device. They go 100 years Forward uh, to 1588, and, and Sir Ralph Oldcastle goes with them, and uh, and there they are in the reign of Queen Elizabeth in time to help the British prepare against the Spanish Armada. <laughs> so that's the third book in the series. And in the third book, we also meet Christopher Marlowe, mm-hmm. who was a real person, playwright, um, be, slightly before Shakespeare, but well known to Shakespeare. Um, he was also an intelligencer, which was mm-hmm. the, the Elizabethan word for spy. Right. He was the original 007. Yeah, yeah. He was. And uh, so while Paxton is trying to help uh, the British 
develop new weapons. Of course, these do include dirigibles and Gatling guns. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I, you know, I, I research. I, I do research. Sure, yeah. My first idea when I was planning Paxton versus the Armada was submarines, mm -hmm. right? Okay, <laughs> so I did my research. There had never been a successful submarine by the time Paxton left the 19th century right. in 1885. Mm -hmm. There had never been a successful submarine. But uh -huh. Count von Zeppelin had been an observer uh -huh. with the Union Army during the War of Yankee Aggression, mm -hmm. and he got his first balloon ride. They used observation balloons because yeah. they were tethered to the ground, sure. yeah, right. and they just went up and they came down. Mm -hmm. Von Zeppelin took that as his inspiration to make dirigibles. Yeah. So by 1876, there had been a successful diesel-powered dirigible and a successful electric-powered dirigible. Wow. So Paxson could know about these things. Yeah. Very, very careful. He leaves the 19th century in 1885. He can't know about anything. He can't know about Sherlock Holmes. Right. He can't know about... Um, Gentleman Jim Corbett. Anything after anything that after yeah. 1885. Yeah. You know, I try to keep my anachronisms to to the bare minimum. Right. <laughs> Even right. the whole whole series is based on anachronisms because right. <laughs> he introduces them to the yeah. 16th century. I guess that's a long-winded way of saying it, it's great to, to read the books in in series, but you know, it, again, it depends on the individual. It, you know, I would hate to have someone start in, with the fourth book, which is Who Murdered Shakespeare, mm -hmm. and be totally lost. Exactly. Do you do you do a lot of authors that have series? You know, where each each new book in the series, you kind of recap what happened before, or you'll make. I personally prefer authors who um, don't just rewrite, you know, like the first chapter is just rewriting the book before. Right. It's more like stuck here and there. You know, when he did such and such, this happened. Right. Do you find, do you do that? Is that a device to, that you... I try to do that. I, I, I do believe there needs to be continuity, even, uh -huh. even though each book can stand by itself. Yeah. For example, Who Murdered Shakespeare is not really a Paxton book. It's, it's a spinoff. Right. A Paxton appears in it in kind of cameo roles. Mm -hmm. But... It's about Christopher Marlowe's first adventure as a private intelligencer. Okay, mm -hmm. you know, I've invented that term, private intelligencer. There you go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he's approached by the Burbages who owned the, the theater. That was the name of the theater before mm -hmm. the Globe. Mm -hmm. The theater was the theater. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they're approached, uh, he's approached by the Burbages to solve a murder, and it happens to be the murder of someone named William Shakespeare. Oh. And, of but course... I need to read that one. <laughs> <laughs> no one's uh, Of course. I haven't gotten that part. <laughs> you know, everybody kind of wonder, well, William Shakespeare murder? You know. Anyway, and, um, okay, there is some continuity. Marlowe is, is grieving for his beloved Anastasia Petrovka, who is in a state of suspended animation because of something that happens in Paxton versus the Armada. Ah. Okay, so he's grieving over her. Okay. And he doesn't really want to take the commission. He just wants to stay in his little corner and drink whiskey, mm -hmm. cheap whiskey. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and, of course, if, if anybody listening thinks the name Marlowe, hmm, that sounds familiar. Now, well, there's Philip Marlowe who was Raymond Chandler's mm -hmm. detective. And right. he was actually named after... 
uh, Christopher Marlowe. Oh. Okay. So, and you'd have to read the book to see there's a connection there. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. So, anyway, Marlowe is, is reluctant to take the commission until uh, the Burbage, who talks to him, and it's not Richard, it's his younger brother, um, says, well, the, the guy who was murdered is William Shakespeare. He says, what? And then <laughs> I'm on the job. Right. So yeah. uh, he follows the, the clues, follows the trail, encounters um, Paxton from time to time. But he has an interesting encounter in a pub where he's, again, he's been hitting the bottle pretty heavily and can't go very long. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's the hard drinking private eye is just mm-hmm. part of the, the genre. Right. So walks into a pub. He sees a man sitting there all by himself looking very distraught. Uh, a man with dark, disheveled hair, dark mustache, wearing what he thinks are clothes, much like the clothes that Paxton wears. You know, he wouldn't say 19th century, but it's says 19th century. He sits down and begins to talk to the man. And when Marlowe reveals that he's an intelligencer, and the man says, well, I, I have devised a series of ratiocination uh, stories, and they've been very popular, and uh, perhaps I might help you solve the crime. Um, but Marlowe notices also that the, the man is grieving, uh, he seems to be very, very distraught. And he, and he asks him, well, why, why are you grieving? He says, well, my Annabelle Lee, my, my... <laughs> okay, so you see who the man yeah, is. Yeah, <laughs> I do. Okay, well, this is, uh, you know, and, and I, have, I have my niece to thank. Uh, my niece is kind of interested in psychic phenomena. She said she had read that Edgar Allan Poe time traveled psychically. She had read that, that he claimed that he did. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. And I thought, well, welcome. <laughs> yeah, welcome to my book. Welcome to my book. <laughs> and so we have a couple of problems going there in this book. And of course, I, I like good subplots. I try to keep, sure. you know, keep yeah. the book, yeah. you know, multiple levels of interest. So uh, Marla takes it upon himself to help um, Poe, of course, he calls himself Arthur Gordon Pym. He's, he's not admitting that who he is. Of course, mm-hmm. That was one of his very late stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he's, Marlowe takes it upon himself to try to find a way to save Poe's wife. Okay? okay. Of course, she's dying of consumption, and, and there hadn't been any cures for consumption. But there's a character that I introduced in the first Paxton book, Father Tranquilus, uh-huh. who... Um, is a, he's an herbalist, okay? He right. knows herbal remedies for lots of things. And so they call him in on the case, and then he says, well, and I've done my research on this, he says that moringa leaf, that moringa leaf with, um, stewed in um, milk, seethed in milk and seethed with garlic, actually, not, it's not a cure for consumption, but it helps him ameliorate the, the symptoms, mm-hmm. which help to kind of keep it at bay, you know. So Father Tranquilus comes in, and, and they help uh, yeah. Pim, yeah. Arthur Gordon Pim. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so and, and Poe helps uh, uh, Marlowe to work on this, the mystery of... Uh, mm-hmm. they, they find, they, they examine the body, and um, it's apparently the work of an expert, not just a, a back alley mm-hmm. uh, robbery mm-hmm. and so forth. And so the, the problem is that Pym kind of flickers in and out of the 16th century unpredictably. So they might be a hot, on a hot trail, and then he's gone. He's gone. Okay. Ah, okay. okay so, so that's going on. Um, 
and a, you know, a number a number of other things I think that will keep the reader interested sure. in things that are going. Yeah. Okay. So those were that's those were your first four, right? Right. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Then then what what came next? Well, uh, I got the, uh, two two unrelated right. novels. Okay. Right. I have uh, a rumor of innocence yes. and the song of the highwayman. Right. Okay. Right. Okay, and A Rumor of Innocence is based on the uh, reference to the Nephilim in the book of Genesis. Mm-hmm. It's Genesis chapter 6. And uh, most people are familiar with the King James Version, which, which says there were giants in the earth in those days. Well, the original word is the Nephilim, the Nephilim, or on the, the, the earth in those mm-hmm. days and mm-hmm. after. Well, Nephilim is Hebrew for the fallen ones. Mm-hmm. And... Well, that's just intrigued me. Who were the fallen ones? Who were mm-hmm. they? Why were their, their children the heroes of old? Did the research, of course, I love research. And any author who doesn't do research, who doesn't love research, mm-hmm. should be raising cucumbers, yes. okay? Well, and, and people know. I mean, readers are smart, and right. they, they will know if you are, uh, you know, faking something, right. and you didn't do your research. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. There is an apocryphal gospel. Uh, gospel. Of course, there are lots of them, but mm-hmm. this one's called The Book of Enoch, and mm-hmm. it tells the whole story of the Nephilim, mm-hmm. which uh, just I'll summarize it briefly, and that is the Nephilim were angels. They were, they were originally a, an order of angels known as the Watchers, mm-hmm. okay? And they had a prime directive. They were to watch over the human beings who were still a relatively new race, mm-hmm. but they were never to get involved with the locals, okay? Right. The prime uh-huh. directive, yeah. same, same yeah. as in Star Trek, all right? right. Yeah. Okay, well, it says in Genesis, they, they saw that the daughters of men were fair, and so they took unto them such wives as they chose. They mm-hmm. violated the prime directive. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> they become the Nephilim. They become the fallen ones, all right? Oh, okay. So now... 20 centuries later, all right? So a rumor of innocence takes place in the 20th century. As a matter of fact, I've got a little uh, preface that says it takes place in 1991, and that was a time when people still smoked in in, um, restaurants and even in hospital lounges. Mm -hmm. Nobody had cell phones. Mm -hmm. There was no Wi-Fi, okay? So that's basically the the premise there. And uh, it's... Basically, the Nephilim are trying to make a comeback after all these centuries and um, doing it by sacrificing children who are their linear descendants long, long, long down, down the line, okay? And, of course, the female protagonist has a daughter who is likely to be a victim, and uh, the male protagonist is dating her, and mm-hmm. of course he's trying to help her prevent that from happening. And there, there are two, I think, very uh, dynamic male characters. One of them uh, is an expert in the occult. His name is Dr. Trevor Faulkner, and uh, a detective who specializes in cults and uh, you know strange phenomena. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name is uh, Michael Pentangeli, and uh, of course Pentangeli is... Italian for five angels, and you have to read the <laughs> There's book. There's Italian in like everywhere, kind well, of well, sprinkled. Io sono Siciliano. I'm a hundred percent nineteenth-century Sicilian, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I grew up um, 
listening to the Sicilian dialect, and it was this kind of funny Sicilian American. You know, you've heard of Spanglish, right? Uh-huh. Well, this yeah. is Sicilianish. <laughs> uh, my grandparents had words, okay, like there's perfectly good word for ice cream in Italian, gelato, right? Mm-hmm. All right. My grandmother called it ice cream. <laughs> okay. And I would know what that means. Uh, right, okay. And, and okay. The word they always used for bathroom was bacauzo. Well, it took years for me to figure out that means back house. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the outhouse. Yeah, you know, yeah. The bacauzo. So <laughs> anyway. That's awesome. The, yeah. You know, but there's a pure Sicilian dialect, which is actually based on vulgar Latin. Oh. Okay, and it has yeah. really been preserved over the centuries. Okay, mm-hmm. so, and that's why I grew up hearing that. And then took I took four years of formal standard Toscano in uh, college, so I speak both fluently. Mm-hmm. But you know, but my heart is is uh, with the Italian kind of the the the, the worldview, the the universal view. And mm-hmm. I think uh, if you read uh, a rumor of innocence, I think you will like. Patrick Michael Pantangeli very much. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, when I was, uh, okay, here's when I was uh, writing him, when I was writing that book, I had the actor Robert Loggia in mind. Now, uh-huh. I, if, you, yeah. if you remember Robert Loggia. Oh, absolutely. Wonderful yeah. actor, Italian, yes. of course, in fact, yeah. Sicilian. Um, yeah, and that was my dream was to have it uh, you know, produced exactly. and to have him play yeah. Michael Pantangeli. Um, so, and, you know, that might have been one of your questions, you know, how I think of my characters. Yeah. I, I think of actors. I think of actors or people that I, sometimes right. it's people I know. Um, okay, Paxton, no question about I know. It. I know who this is going to be. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you said Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. We've talked about that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Kelly got old, and now we'll have to go to somebody else. Yeah. Well, I was thinking uh, Scott Eastwood, Clint Eastwood's Clint Eastwood's Oh, son. Yeah. Good. yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, and, and so uh, it helps, you know, visualizing a character um, yeah. to, uh, to have an actor in mind or an actress in some cases, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, and the, to, me, they're, uh, to me, they're real people. I mean, you know, it's, this is my fictive sure. universe, and yeah. I'm, I'm the, okay, I'm the creator of that fictive exactly. universe. Yeah. A little, you know, a little bit of God trip, you know. Yeah. But, but uh, of course, I, you know, I have the materials to work with, thanks to the real God, you know, yeah. and, and to many, many writers whose works I've loved over the years, you know. Yeah, uh, I love those these synopses mm-hmm. <laughs> of your okay. books is really good. I oh, think that's, that's going to give people, me, I'm, I'm like, dang on, I need to, I need to add, you know, bring those all up mm-hmm. uh, in my stack of <laughs> yeah. things that I want to read. Um, but and you do, of course, your adult novels. Yes. But then, how many years ago was it you decided to go with Lucas and Nellie and do that oh, story? What led well, to that? Okay, so Lucas is fourteen years old now, uh-huh. and it was probably about ten years ago mm-hmm. when I wrote the first Lucas and Nellie book. And of course, I have to say that that it took me a while to find an artist who could do the work and would do the work. Mm-hmm. And I cannot say enough good about Miranda Ponder. Uh-huh. She is fabulous. Yeah. Uh, as you, you can see from her illustrations, but what you don't see is how businesslike she is, how conscientious she is artistically. Yeah. Pleasure to work with. That's great. And, and yeah. you know, of course, we'll continue that series and mm-hmm. I, you know, any other series that I'm working on. Um, 
We've got a new children's series just percolating. It's going to be called Bodie and the Beagle. Oh, okay. Beagles are good. Right. Beagles are good. Yeah, <laughs> Bodie is a, a little a, a baby that um, a, a friend of mine, her niece, has adopted a baby, and they named him Bodie. I can't explain that. <laughs> I have no idea why. It's a good name. But, but okay. he, they just he's adorable. I've met him. He's just he's just like four months old now. Mm-hmm. Tiny, tiny little mm-hmm. thing. Um and uh, and there's a beagle in their neighborhood named Todd, who <laughs> has got a lot of personality. He's just got the most personality of any animal yeah. I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh and uh, so I said, well, I'm going to write a new, new children's book, Bodie and the Beagle. So that one's still percolating. That you one's know. there. It's in the it's in the queue, but right, it's in back the queue, a bit. Right. Yeah, but that's exactly. what, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, and um, I noticed uh, in your children's books because I think we all read them when they come in, and and are are they all uh, in? Uh, more like poetry. They they all yeah, tell the, the story through rhyme, right? right? Yeah. You know, the, it just happened. That was yeah. that was a happy accident. <laughs> uh, I was I was thinking about um, you know the first book in the Lucas and Nelly series, and there, there's an old song that Burl Ives used to sing. A Bonnie Wee Lassie whose name it was Nell lived in <laughs> um, lived in a house where her grandmother dwelt, and uh-huh. that that rhythm that meter yes. got into my head, and so a Bonnie Wee La- a Serpent whose name is Sweet Nell yeah. swims in the waters of Lake Dardanelle. And that's, uh, yeah, because that's who Lucas. Of course, we know where you got that. But <laughs> Nelly and Nell is, is um, it, the Lake Dardanelle serpent. Yes, like our <laughs> like Loch Ness. Right. Nessie. Yeah. So uh, yeah. anyway, and they've had some real adventures. And I noticed yeah. in one of the books, what was it? Uh, I forget who saw it first, but we're like. Wait a minute, that looks like Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> and Natasha and Boris. Right. There, there's definite homages. Yeah. Um, one of the, the so books that well, Moran is working on right now is Lucas and Nellie's Halloween Caper. Oh, okay. yeah. And, uh, of course, Moose's friend is a flying squirrel yeah. <laughs> who gets to wear goggles and a helmet for Halloween. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. He's been watching TV. <laughs> oh, I grew up with it. The, the Jay oh. Ward cartoons, oh my gosh, just yes. wonderful. Love them. Uh, yeah, and and sure, there are there are certain homages, and and um, I I think the original writers probably take them well. They're intended yeah. as a tribute. You know? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, and and it does. Um, when somebody sees it, it's like, oh yeah, I forgot about them. Let's. Uh, Let's look that up and right, see sure. if they're still around. You know that yeah, kind of it's thing. All so on DVD now. Absolutely, and yeah. And I, I love, love that. <laughs> that's that's, that that's where they had the fractured fairy tales, right? right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love those especially. Uh, Ed, sure. Edward Ed, Everett Horton. Everett Horton, yes, <laughs> loved it, loved it. Uh, so anybody listening, you probably know our generation, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. It's a good generation. Yes, it is. Um, so you've talked a little bit about your characters mm-hmm. and where you've pulled them from. Um, what uh, do you have? You ever had uh, like female protagonists like leading the book? Have, do you have any of your books where there's a strong female? Okay, I would have to say all of them have strong okay. female characters. Lady Joanna, uh, who is Paxton's yeah. love of his life, mm-hmm. and of course they're married. Um, he teaches oh, her. Oh, spoiler! To, <laughs> I don't think he, I got that far. <laughs> he teaches her to fire his Winchester, mm-hmm. 
And at the Battle of Bosworth Field, she's up top in the observation post with that Winchester, and I won't oh, say wow. anything more about that. Okay. <laughs> now the, I have to find out. Okay. Yeah. Now he he um, here's a little bit of a spoiler. Uh, what he does, he finds out. You know, he can't help Richard by creating any kind of rapid-fire repeating rifle, but he can create a single-shot rifle, okay? Well, those have to be built in the, uh, the, the Royal Arsenal, which is operated by a woman, Edwina. Oh, okay, okay. okay. Another strong female character. Yeah. Very strong, very decisive. Um, she uh, is the granddaughter of Father Tranquillus, who is mm-hmm. in the... And anybody who reads the books and, and pays close attention to Tranquillus might see just a little bit of Brother Cadfile in him. Mm, okay. okay. Just a wee, okay. wee bit of yeah. Dad Jacoby. Uh, okay. Anyway, um, so uh, Edwina, strong female character. Um, Queen Elizabeth in Paxton mm-hmm. versus the Armada. She gets to pilot her own airship. Okay. There are no oh, weak wow. women in my... Good, you know, good. I, I was the youngest, the only son in, in my family. I had two older sisters. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit of a matriarchy. My <laughs> grandmother and my mom, my Aunt Chris, and my aunts uh, on the other side. <laughs> so you, know, you, you were raised right, is I what you're saying. I was raised right. <laughs> okay. I was absolutely raised right. No, there are no weak women in my novels. Okay. Um, ha- have you found, is it more difficult to write for the opposite sex uh, as far as, well, I guess, you know, um, their physicality, their uh, speech and all that. Have you ever found it, it's kind of a challenge? I, you know, I just think of women that I know. And as I say, you I know, know many yeah. strong women, yeah. very admirable uh, career women. Right. Um, you know, I've, that was one thing, uh, you know, when the, the feminist movement came up and, mm-hmm. and all of that. Um, you know, I was thinking, what? I've got two older sisters that can do anything. What's the big deal? <laughs> exactly. You know? um, so, and, and, you know, this was cer- certainly the truth. And, and I, there were capable women in my family. Uh, no question about that. So I, you know, I, I just write the women it I know. It comes naturally yeah, to it, you it, then. It, it comes to, you from know? your experience. And, yeah. yeah. That's great. Um, do you read book reviews have you had your book reviewed on different... Well, Amazon mostly. Okay. I, I, I think uh, the woman that does the emails, newsletter, whatever, for the Richard III Society, she uh-huh. reviewed uh, Paxton at Bosworth Field. Um, but I, honestly, I, I don't read uh, yeah. many because, uh, you know, sometimes you just you read one and you think, did they even read the book? Exactly. You know, <laughs> How did they get okay, that? There's, yeah. there's one on Amazon. It's for Paxton Bosworth Field. And she said, well, I just don't believe anybody ever spoke that way. This is a terrible book. <laughs> well, which person spoke which way right. exactly? And, is and she- that does remind me. Yeah. You do write um, Bosworth. No, not Bosworth. <laughs> Help me out here. Okay. The Battle of Bosworth Paxton. Field. Paxton. Yeah. <laughs> Paxton. You do write his speech in a dialect. Yes, it very, is. Very, uh, so, not Southern, but country. Well, it's supposed yeah, to be. It's a different. It's supposed to be John Wayne. Kind of cowboy yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I've had people say, well, you should, you know, write him more standard English, but 
there he is among the English in the first, first of all, the 15th century, yeah. and then later in the, the yeah. 16th century. I want an immediate recognition of, of his... He ain't from around he here. He ain't from around here. That's exactly right. <laughs> yes. He's got to stand out. And it, and course, and it did. It yeah. did make him stand and, out. And, of course, his clothes. He's always wearing range clothes. Except, yeah. <laughs> except when there's a formal occasion, he's wearing his best Buffalo Bill foufra. <laughs> Another spoiler just to get you enticed here. Um, Well, you know, talking about reviews and all, um, that you can take that take from those sometimes uh, critiques and all. But do you have a strong support group or uh, that helps you critique your books? It gives you feedback. Do beta readers or anything like that? I have a, a couple of friends who are also writers who will who will read my books and give me feedback, and uh, in some cases. I, I take their advice and say, yeah, you're right. That is too long. Let's chunk these mm-hmm. chapters and we don't need them. Uh, in other cases, I say, nah, I'm keeping it. You know, yeah, you know. yeah. Well, you uh, know what you're trying to say. And right. other people, I mean, if they don't get it, then, yeah, you go back and look at it and go, hmm, maybe if I change this word or that word, then they would they would understand. But, yeah, that's, this is what I meant to say. So, right. yeah. Right. So yeah. totally understand that. Yeah. Right. Um, um, and, you know, and there's sort of a, a story talking about beta readers, um, sort of a story about the, the – the Song of the Highwaymen mm-hmm. or The Smuggler's Opera. Mm-hmm. Okay, I started that book because I have a, a good friend. In fact, he was a student of mine back in the 80s. Um, and now and he's a writer, mm-hmm. but he's, he's never finished anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay, and I thought, okay, if I tell him, well, we're going to co-write this book, okay, I'm, we're going to take the Alexander Dumas thing about the Corsican brothers, identical twins separated at birth. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. going to write one twin, you're mm-hmm. going to write the other. Uh-huh. Okay. He wrote three chapters and stopped. Oh. Okay, so, so oh. I, I, I wound up writing both twins, okay? yeah. which was great fun. I mean, it was, I bet. you know, yeah. one of them is raised as the son of an earl and the other one is... He's many things. He's apprenticed to a cheesemonger, and then eventually winds up being a player in London, mm-hmm. and then eventually they come back together again. Right. You know, very kind of the prince and the pauper yeah. kind of vibe uh, to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, that was one of the most fun books for me to write. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, there's a lot of fa- fantasy mixed in with it. Um, now, and, yeah. speaking of fantasy, yeah, you are... You, you know, you have a lot of battle scenes mm-hmm. and fighting mm-hmm. and weaponry and all that. What's your involvement with ma- not just creating weaponry on the page? Okay. Don't you make... Well, well yes. I, I, <laughs> things? I, I make <laughs> swords, uh-huh. knives, armor. Um, one, t- one time, okay, and this def- definitely relates to writing. One time when I gave up writing for good, uh, <laughs> I, it's, it's, I, do it, I do it periodically. Exactly. I, I give up writing for good. Uh, anyway, I decided I'm going to make a halberd, which is a shirt of mail. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it took me six months to make <laughs> a shirt of mail. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's just kind of mid-thigh length and doesn't really have sleeves. It's, they just kind of come off the shoulder. Uh-huh. But it's a it's a legitimate shirt of mail. Uh, <laughs> but I've made swords. Yeah. And, um, to the, uh, to me, that, that gives a lot of legitimacy to um, your weapon uh, dis- descriptions or, you know, if you're writing about that, well, you've made it or you you really right. understand the workings that go into 
creating that piece of whatever it right, is, absolutely. you know. And so that I guess it comes down to research again, but um, well, but I, it fascinates me that you actually make all that yeah, cool yeah. stuff. And I've also I've been a fencer since high school. Oh, so, cool! So, yeah, yeah. And I've had a fencing. Um, group in Russellville multiple times mm-hmm. and they kind of wax and wane and you know right. you start start at a critical mass and then you start losing people mm-hmm. and then you just give up and uh, so yeah we, you know I have the fencing background and uh, and the medieval uh, I'm a medievalist okay mm-hmm. that's, that's my area of specialization in literature and uh, one of my great mentors, uh, one who um, influenced me for 30 years before I even met him, was a man named Ewart Oakeshott, who okay. was the world's foremost authority on the medieval sword. And I studied his works extensively, mm-hmm. starting in graduate school, and uh, finally was privileged to meet him um, uh, in 1999. I was able to go to, to England and meet him and his lovely wife, Sybil, oh, wow. uh, in their townhouse in Ely, uh, England, mm-hmm. East, East Anglia. Mm-hmm. And um, so if you encounter a character named Ewart in, in uh, <laughs> one of my books, you'll know that's an homage. I need, uh, to, I need to keep a note pad <laughs> handy and write down things. And sure. then when I see you, I'll say, so now who is this moment <laughs> after? <laughs> Give me the background on this character right, or that. Right. So anyway, well, Stan, this has been delightful to talk to you. Well, I have you. a I've much deeper understanding of your books, and I really want to get back to them. So <laughs> they're kind of, you know, in my stack. Right. Um, um, but right. uh, they are, it's fascinating and, um, and it's, it's unique. You, I think you produce a, um, a unique genre. What, what mm-hmm. do you classify your genre as? Uh, yeah, I guess they, you might call them crossovers. They're, you know, yeah. um, a, a time travel westerns. Exactly. You know? Yeah. <laughs> they kind of incorporate a lot of different things. Right. So that there's something for everybody in, uh, in the books. So right. I would highly recommend you guys checking out um, at least one of the books. All of them would be awesome. Uh, but we have them here at the store at Dog Ear Books that we can uh, provide for you. Um, if you have any other questions that you might want to send us to ask Stan, we would be happy to pass those on. Uh, but we have enjoyed having you on our podcast. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure.